Did you know that we really don't know when Jesus was born? December 25th is a beautiful idea because it's so close to the winter solstice, that, that time of the year when the light in the sky begins to increase and the darkness begins to recede. But that's not in the Bible. In fact, Luke tells us that shepherds were living outside at the time of Christ's birth. They were sleeping in the open air. And December is cold. <laughs> in Frederick, it's cold. And in Bethlehem, it's cold. It's not good weather for sleeping outside. So it's, it's not likely Jesus was born in the winter. And I'm deeply sorry to Santa Claus for breaking that news to him. But that was funny. That was really... Well, it wasn't really funny. I wondered about that joke, whether I should take it out there, who I was going to apologize to. But Easter Sunday is very different. Easter Sunday, we know when Easter Sunday happened just about. Because God ordained that Jesus would be crucified just before the Sabbath of the Passover feast. And we know exactly when that is. We know that he died in the middle of the Jewish month of Nisan. Maybe 14th or 15th Nisan. And so we know that he died in spring. And so we know that the first Easter, his actual resurrection took place as spring was exploding in Jerusalem. I cannot help but believe that spring is a song about the resurrection. And driving around yesterday on this glorious weekend of spring in full bloom, yesterday was, you can't top that kind of day, weather-wise. And I looked around at everything that was going on, and I, I just couldn't help but rejoice in the glory of God's beautiful metaphor of spring. The season of spring, it wraps itself around the resurrection, like wrapping paper, beautiful wrapping paper around the greatest gift To me, spring is the oddest of seasons in the most beautiful way. It's a complete reversal of the sad trajectory of our fallen world. Did you know that the universe is ruled by this principle in physics called the second law of thermodynamics? The law, this law briefly states that all things are moving from order to disorder, from coherence to chaos, from health to to decay at some point things were great (laughs) and now they're unraveling throughout the universe take our sun for instance upon which all life on earth is dependent it is slowly dying and this earth in a billion years will be inhabitable because of that slowly but surely our universe and our bodies are ruled by this law of increasing order and slow decay But look at spring. In the middle of this terrible law comes spring. And suddenly in the dead of winter, spring brings wild order and new birth. The trees rebel with green leaves so young and new and pure and vibrant. You could swear that that ancient maple in your backyard was a day old. Flowers. Like an invading army, they shoot through the grave of dirt beneath them with so much beauty and boldness, you feel almost ambushed by the life force as they just defiantly rejoice out of the dirt. Bees and birds and dandelions, they invade every backyard as if every homeowner was just a squatter or a renter finding out their lease was up. That's what my backyard looks like right now. 
I, I, you know, dandelions are not the, you know, the most HOA-friendly thing to have in your yard, but I just don't care right now. They're just glorious. So send me your letters, HOA. But everywhere you look right now, the world screams, the dead of winter is dead. Death is dead. And life, new beautiful life, has won the day. And so that the first resurrection happened in spring is no accident of timing. Just as the sacrifice of the Passover lamb is the perfect backdrop for the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we see Jesus' crucifixion perfectly timed for Passover. God places the resurrection of his son in the very blossom of new life in spring. And this morning we're going to take a look at a promise at the heart of Romans that gives us a promise. It tells us that though we live in a world ruled by decay and death and eternal spring, far more strong and joyful and victorious than we can ever imagine is coming. coming. And indeed, it has already invaded. It has already begun. So follow me as I read Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Let's pray. Lord, help me to honor your word and work through your word despite me to honor your name. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, to be able to be in this time your servant, as I am your child through the blood of Christ. Allow me to serve you, Lord. Allow me, Lord, by your grace, uh, to be a means of help to your people. Lord, with or without me, nourish the family that sits before me in you today and bring light to eyes that are closed to your glory that they might see 
your glory and be wooed by your beauty and be drawn to your goodness and holiness and be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son you love. Even this day, let there be resurrection life afresh and anew in this room. For those who know you, Lord, today, let us know you better more gloriously, more beautiful than we have when we walked in. Let us know you better as our hope and our desire. And for those, Lord, who do not know you, Lord, make yourself known to them in your great mercy. For the sake of your name, for the sake of all your Son has done, we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So a little backdrop here for this passage we're looking at today. Before verse 18, Paul has been speaking in Romans 8 about life in the spirit, the spirit of Jesus. And he's been telling these Christians in Rome that because the spirit of Jesus Christ lives inside them, they now have power over sin and they must seek to overcome their sin by the power of that same spirit who lives inside them. And he knows something. Paul knows that this will mean suffering for them. Suffering in the midst of terrible persecution that was afoot in that day, which would tempt them to deny Jesus. But it, he also knows it means suffering against all the trials of life that they would want to give up Jesus for and, and pursue easy escapes. It means suffering against their own hearts, sinful desires, when their minds would try to seduce them away from God. It means staying faithful in the midst of all that. And all that faithfulness is going to involve some level of suffering. Either against persecution and oppression and the desire to hate. Or against the escape of ease and sin in, in other ways. To stand against all that is going to mean suffering. And with that suffering in mind, Paul speaks this word today of hope. So let's go through this passage bit by bit and see what hope we can glean from Paul's words for ourselves. And start right in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is revealed to us. Verse 18 is a kind of summary of the whole passage. Paul is contrasting two things. Present sufferings on the one hand and glory to be revealed to us on the other hand. And into these two baskets of present suffering or glory to be revealed, everything else in this passage goes. So let's start where Paul starts with present sufferings. What characterizes present sufferings? Well, it includes what we just talked about. The persecution these believers are going through. And the suffering that comes as they have to patiently stand for Jesus against their own sinful desires to, to give in to that persecution by denying Christ or, or hate their enemies. But then here in verse 20, Paul says that not just them, but all of creation suffers in a certain way. And he describes it as being subject, in verse 20, subject to futility. Everything, Paul says, in this creation is subject to futility. In verse 21, Paul speaks of creation being a slave to corruption. What is this futility and this corruption that Paul is talking about? Futility is a terrible thing. It means pointlessness and uselessness. And this word for corruption here, we might think of corruption in the police department. Well, it, or corruption in the, you know, in the FBI or corruption in politics. It means something much more universal. It, it means decay. 
Decay leading to disorder. Decay leading to death. It sounds like that law of second thermodynamics, doesn't it? Physicists know something of what God knows about this world. We live in a natural world that is full of futility and decay. The beauty and the purpose that we all long for, bits and pieces of which we see, and at times we we walk in the stream of beauty and purpose, it all ends. It all ends. And Paul says it's futile. It's futile. It all ends in death. Moses laments in Psalm 90, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. This year I was able to see the gravestone marker for my mom. My dad and I were able to see it via a photo that one of our our, our relatives sent to us. And it's beautiful. But it's a gravestone. I know my mom is this vivacious, witty, just life of every party, creative, brilliant, witty, beautiful, inside and out. And from a purely earthly point of view right now, it's all futility. She's in the ground. Decay. That's futility to me. And it pains me to realize as I look into my children's eyes that their beautiful eyes, their beautiful little bodies that are so young and full of amazing energy, all that creation, if it's allowed to progress into the natural end, it's going to decay and they will end up in the ground too, just like me. All that life and love and humor and desire and joy and potential, it's going to wear out, the Bible says, it wears out like a garment and gets thrown in the dirt. If that's not futility, I don't know what is. Psalm 103 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. How long before all we've done and all we've lived and all we remembered and all we've treasured, it's all forgotten. Certainly by our great-grandchildren, that's what happens. I can remember a little bit about my grandpa. I don't know who the heck my great-grandfather was. Many years of loving and living and striving. All the stories, all the memories, all the joys, all the sufferings. It just recedes, evaporates into vapor and it's gone. That is futility. And that's the futility that Paul is talking about. And it encompasses more than our own lives and our own bodies. It involves all of creation. Not just cancer and diabetes and mental illness that we experience inwardly, but floods and earthquakes and tornadoes and droughts and famines that sweep up this world in tragedy, even to the sun, as we noted. So we ask, why? How did this happen? Is this indeed the natural way of things? What's the point? Is this where everything ends? Verse 20 tells us how this happened. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Someone ordained this. Someone willed this futility and this corruption. 
We're told the sobering truth that God himself subjected his own creation to be enslaved. After he intended it for beauty and joy and hope, he enslaved it to futility and decay. Why did he do this? Why would he do such a sad, awful thing? First, he did it as a judgment. We need to go back to the garden where, after bringing forth all the beauty and all the power and all the life of his creation, God brought forth the pinnacle of his creation in Adam and Eve, made in his image to be his very representatives, to steward all that God had created. And yet, it wasn't long before Adam rebelled and in essence said to God, I will be my own God. I won't honor you. Or love you as you deserve. I'm going to deny you your place. And make your place my own. I'm going to make my own way. And trust in myself. That's the essence of what Adam did. When he did that little thing. By taking the only law God had given him. And saying no. The fruit of that tree. Of the knowledge of good and evil. Was no Minor thing. It's just a piece of fruit on a tree. What's the big deal? No. It it was a voice Adam could give expression to. To say, God, you will be my God. Or to say, no. I will be my own. And Adam, and all of us in potential in him, said that to God. No. We will be our own God. And God warned Adam that rejecting him would bring death and decay and disorder and futility. And that day that Adam made that choice with Eve in the garden to reject God, they began to see the fruit of that choice in their own decaying relationship with God and each other. Spiritually, the death had already taken place. They were separated in their friendship with God. They were no longer his perfect image bearers. They were now bearing the image of his enemies. And and soon their own physical bodies would follow with their own decaying. And on that day, God cursed the natural world that Adam had been set over. Man's relationship to creation would be corrupted. And to his fellow man, starting with his wife, it would be marred by bitterness and discord and disunity. And all of Adam's descendants, all of us, we have the same story as well. Rejecting God, we are left with a world, a history that we can see filled with selfishness and greed and bitterness and arrogance. All the racism and poverty and war. It all comes from that first rebellion. Saying to God, no, you won't be our God. And God has justly decreed that the end of all of man's rebellion would be futility and decay. The ultimate expression is never-ending separation from God. All his goodness, all his love, all his holiness as judgment in hell. It's so sobering. But things turn in verse 21. Because God has something even more mysterious behind this judgment. Look at what verse 21 says. 
Well, actually, it starts at the end of verse 20. God subjected creation to this death and decay in hope. Do you see that word? In hope. In hope of what? In hope that creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So wait a second. God gave creation over to corruption in the hope that creation might be set free from slavery to corruption? God gave creation over to death in the hope that it might be set free from death? Well, in this verse, we see the mercy of God in his judgment. The truth is that God allows us to experience the consequences of our sin in this world because he is merciful. He allows us to taste and see the beginning of his judgment in order that we might come to him to be set free before that judgment is complete and final. While we live our brief time in this world, God allows us to see the futility and the decay and the hopelessness of it. We can see the selfishness and the greed and the hatred and where it all leads. We can see that even the beauty and the joy of life that we have here, all of it ends in decay and death. Just as a wise dad and mom allow their child to experience some of the consequences of their gravest actions and wrongdoings. They do that in the hope that this child would be sobered and woken up. So God allows mankind to taste and see the effects of his rebellion so that we might turn back to him and find mercy. That's what it means when God says, I'm giving you over to judgment that I might free you from death. And you know what happens when we turn back to God and we say, Lord, I, I, I don't want this. I don't want decay and death. I don't want to live in selfishness. I don't want to live in lovelessness. I don't want to live being my own God. I belong to you. You have a right over my life. Do you know what he does when we say that? He opens his arms and welcomes us home. And our story becomes the story of that prodigal son in Luke, Luke 15. Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of a son who treated his father like trash. The one from whom he had come, his very source of life. He tosses him in the trash like so much waste. And he uses his father to get what he can of his father's wealth. And he leaves his father in contempt. And then he spends his father's treasure selfishly, wasted on himself. And all that wealth begins to die. It begins to decay along with his own futile hopes for joy. But in his suffering, he sees the futility of this decay and of his choices, and he comes back to his father. And here is what his father does in response. Jesus says, But while he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him. And he felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And for each of us, when we see the hopelessness of our ways and turn to God for mercy, he celebrates. He does the same thing that he did for Linda and that he did for me. He places robes of forgiveness and cleansing and care and love and strength and new life around us. And it's all possible because just as the father slayed the fatted calf, our father slays his son for our celebration, for our return. And in his death, Jesus takes the punishment for all of our sins, past, present, and future. He was slain as an offering for all that we have done wrong. And all that we will ever do wrong. So that we might have an eternal celebration with God. And this brings us to our second basket, the glory to be revealed. The glory to be revealed. Let's go back through our original passage and consider the glory to be revealed. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is the glory to be revealed in us in verse 18? It is the revealing of the sons of God in verse 19. It is the freedom of the glory of the children of God in verse 21. Now first, let's get something clear. If you're a woman, <laughs> what's all this talk about sons of God, right? Please understand that sons of God is not a sexist term to exclude women from God's redemption. No, just the opposite. It is a term to denote the legal privilege status in Paul's day of the male child. The male child was the one who would get the greatest blessing and honor in his household. And so this is Paul's way of saying, just like he says in Galatians, when he says, there's no longer male or female, but we're all sons of God in Christ Jesus. He doesn't mean there's no more men and women. He means that in terms of being God's treasured possession of equal worth as his children, men and women are the same. Daughters and sons all have the same glory and value before God. And in that sense, we are all legally sons. So women, you mean just as much to God as any man in this room. Verse 21 makes clear that what all creation is longing for. This is a mystery to me. I mean, are the birds longing for this? Are the streams and the mountains and the, the bees and the flowers, are they longing for this? I don't know how creation works, but in some way I just have to say yes. They're longing for the end of death that will become reality. When the children of God enter into glorious freedom. What is this freedom and when will it come? Moving forward into the passage, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. 
Not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we groan ourselves, within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Paul says, we groan, we ache, we long, we sigh, we yearn. And what for? What is this glory and freedom we long for? At the end of verse 23, he says it's our adoption. The redemption of our body. That's what, that's what the believer is longing for. We long for this perfection of our redemption. Which will only take place at the resurrection of the dead. Paul says this is equated with our adoption. But does that mean we're not yet God's children? Aren't we already adopted in Christ? He, in fact, if you look at the text, Paul says it. Just a few verses before, we cry, Abba, Father, as his adopted children. So, yes, we're God's children. That's why Paul says we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, who confirms our spiritual adoption through our changed lives, a changed life like Linda, evidenced today before you. But listen, first fruits are the first fruits, right? That's why they're called the first fruits. They're not the full harvest. They're the promise, the guarantee of the full harvest. And our possession of the Holy Spirit now is a down payment on something more beyond our imagination that's coming. And we feel this. We, we know we're still not done because we groan. We still ache. We still struggle inside and out. Sins that are done to us, the death we see around us, and the things we still struggle with, confusion, trial. And worst of all, our own sin. We know that our salvation is secure, but it's not finished. Oh, it's not finished, is it? We know that we still live in this decaying world of sin and death. We live in bodies that still die and decay. We live as those in whom weakness and sin still lead us astray to hurt our adopted father and to one another. Oh, and we hate it. We want it to end. We groan for it to end. We, we wait for this final redemption that Paul says will happen at the resurrection when not just our spirits but our bodies are made gloriously new and every ounce of sin is expunged out and every ounce of decay is thrown away from this universe. And this brings us to the promise of Easter Sunday. 2,000 years ago, on Easter Sunday, Jesus Christ said, that is starting now. Jesus Christ said to sin, you have no more power over my people. I have paid your price. And I've got a lot left over. Jesus Christ said to death, you have no more right to rule over this creation. And I'm taking it back. You will be a tool in my hands to draw my children away from the futility of this life back to me. But you will not rule here any longer. Amen. 
Colossians 1.18 says, Jesus is the beginning. He's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. He is not the end. He is not the lastborn from among the dead. He is the beginning. Romans 8.28, Paul says, Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. And I trust in Greek, that's a generic, brothers and sisters. Our bodily resurrection is going to take place because Jesus' resurrection took place. We will have an Easter because he had an Easter. Paul says in just a few breaths before our passage today in in Romans, in, in verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This first fruit that we have of the Holy Spirit, it will ripen. It will blossom into an unimaginable harvest of new life across this earth on that day. I think he's coming back in spring. Maybe this spring. The Holy Spirit will do for you through his power. At the command of the Father, what he did for the Son on that first Easter morning. He will raise you from the dead. Paul calls this the glory, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The freedom of Of the glory of the children of God. Paul could put a mouthful together, couldn't he? He didn't mind lathering adjective upon adjective upon adjective. I just think for Paul, a lot of times, I just run out of words. I'm getting all these visions from heaven and truth from the Spirit. I don't know how to describe it. So I'm just going to pile on some participles and prepositions and... Make millennia of theologians awkward before their congregation. You know, I'm not a theologian. Make millennia of pastors awkward before their congregations. But it's going to be rich if you take the time. (laughs) So he calls this the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What's the freedom? What's the freedom? Well, I take from the context. We've been enslaved to corruption. So it's freedom from that corruption. It's freedom from decay and death. It means reversal of the second law. No more dying. No more decay. You know, I pulled it out at last minute because I just thought maybe it's just not going to be the smartest move. But as a young boy, I, I had a hero in music, and it was Bono from U2. And I remember, I remember when I saw Bono at Red Rocks. I didn't see him live. I saw him on TV in 1983. And he just, he was just a few years older than me, really. Just about 10 years older than me. And he just looked like, you know, a... A messianic hero, you know, a little bit of a great mullet. It's like the everybody makes fun of that haircut, but everybody loved it then. You know, it's like thin sides, long hair. Looked like a stallion of a young man. Just huge, booming voice, running around the stage, full of energy, full of life, proclaiming truth and righteousness through the U2 songs. I mean, I take all that with a big grain of salt, okay? Please don't write me any emails. He is not my pastor or theologian. But, but, but now I still, you know, I still see him. And I, I, 
in pictures, and I just can't believe it. He just looks terrible. <laughs> he looks awful. He's got like 70 bags between his eyes. He's, he's got, how many hair transplants has he had? I don't know. He's got wrinkles. And God bless him, you know. I mean, but he looks awful. And I have watched this happen live in front of me over the past several decades. And he's still out there. Sunday, buddy, Sunday. It's just not the same, though. No, I mean, they've they got way more game than that. But, my, but it, it's seriously, it's alarming to me. I have watched this happen in front of my own eyes. This, this young man, full of vigor, in no time has become an old man. And you older folks, right? Don't get you started on a Mick Jagger, right? No, 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 no. Who said Federer? No coffee for you, Chris Tucker. He, he, let's not go down that road. There's no good come out of this. But it's, it, it's only funny until, right, the hips go and the eyesight goes and the kids don't know how to care and parents don't want the care and and it just, it, it, the plane lands in a, in a place of heartache. And Paul says that's going to be over. We are done with that, Paul says. We are not going back there in Jesus Christ. That has become a bridge to joy and hope and renewal. That's freedom. But it means more than that. It means glory. The glory of children of God. Glory denotes the worth of something being shown forth. And Paul says that the resurrection means glory of the children of God. Our status as children of God will shine forth in glory. Listen, if you've been a Christian for a long time... And you've been walking with God for a long time. You probably feel like you, if you know him deeply, you probably feel like, man, I don't have much glory here. I, I fight, I strive, but it's, it's just so often it's one step forward, two steps back. Oh Lord, I, I love you, but I, the more I see you, the more I know of you and know of my life, I don't love you as I should. I don't love you as you deserve. I want so much more to be so much more to you than I am. And we feel that so deeply. And, and Paul says, that's done. That's over with. We are getting rid of that. Every last drop of resistance and rebellion and sin that you already hate is going to be gone when he comes back. He is not playing around, folks. You are going to be glorious. You are going to be glorious. Ah! Oh. First John 3 says it like this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, this is his second coming, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Everyone who thus hopes purifies himself. 
When Christ returns and raises us, we will see his glory, his holiness, his love, his beauty, his goodness, his undying, uncompromising delight in his father. We will see that Jesus is not just about, hey, I'm holy, I'm loving, I'm awesome. We will see that at his core, he is about relationship with his father. That he, he loves to love his father. He finds his delight in his father. We will see that and it will be gorgeous to us in a way it's never been gorgeous. And the, the beauty of it is that we will become just like that. We will love God the way we long to love him finally and fully and forever. We will be God's children in a way we've never experienced before and cannot now imagine. We will love him for all he is worth in never-ending degrees of joy. We will be able with undying bodies free from sin to take him in like we've never taken him in. And what we will take in will be better than any boyfriend or girlfriend. Better than any husband or wife. Better than any friendship. Better than any earthly pleasure that's great of sex or food or sport or Federer or, or Star Wars movies. It won't come close to this. It won't compare to it. And it will never end. At his resurrection, he said there's a spring that's never going to end. At his second coming, he will say, we're never going back to winter. We're never going back to death. So, so what do we do now? We groan. Isn't it good to have permission from the Lord to groan? To say, Lord, come. This hurts. And we'll learn in a few weeks that the Spirit helps us to groan well as we continue with our Holy Spirit series. But we groan. It's okay to groan. It's right to groan. It's the right response to the futility and decay we see. To even groan in ourselves, about ourselves. Say, oh Lord, I want to be so much more loving to you and to others. Change me. Help me. Oh, he loves to hear that prayer. But we don't just groan. We hope. Right? This is the end of our passage for in hope we've been saved. Hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. We hope, we hope for that resurrection day. This may seem obvious, but it isn't. I don't do enough hoping for that day. I put too much hope in this world. And I don't mean I put hope in, in watching Federer sports. I mean, I, I probably do that too much or movies. But I, I put hope even in the, the good spiritual things I want from this life now. There is just brokenness here that try as we might, try as we might it just, it's just not necessarily going to go away. And I think there's something healthy about just saying, Lord, I will try to live at peace with all men. I will try to strive to love you. But there's just going to be groaning here. And it's going to require a hope in something yet to come. Something I don't yet have. Something I don't yet taste. Because if our best life is now, oh, that's a sad thing. We're hoping in a world that will just move us from heartache to heartache with layers of bitterness and despair around the corner if we're looking for perfection in ourselves and in others now. It's not going to come. 
I think an overemphasis with being satisfied or trying to be satisfied in today, it draws our focus away from God wants it. This, this promise of this day that's coming. In 1 Peter 1.13, I think we have it. We groan. Don't finish the PowerPoint. Didn't get the right slide to Brando on that. But 1 Peter 1.13, David Adams sent it to me this week. It was the perfect message for me in this, in this message. He says, fix your hope completely. <laughs> okay. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't think he's meaning don't enjoy this world, but I think he means when it comes to really majoring in hope, I don't want you to hope in the Ravens. I don't want you to hope in Federer. I don't want you to hope in your spouse or your husband or your kids. I don't want you to hope they fail. But when it comes to majoring in hope, major in this, major in hoping in the certainty that at the revelation of Jesus Christ, he is bringing grace to you beyond your comprehension. Amen. Amen. Let's hope. Let's pray.